An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to have our guest, Asarte Yorinwig, founder and managing director of Burknell Financial Group. Investopedia has named Desarte as one of the top 100 financial advisors in the country for two years running, and he's been called a financial thought leader by everyone from NerdWallet to Financial Planning Magazine. Welcome, Desarte. Thanks, John. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. So let's start at the beginning. What's your origin story? Interesting people we have found often have interesting lives. How did you become the person you are? both professionally and personally. I believe all those things to be true. The most interesting people that I've met have the most interesting and crazy, ridiculous lives. It's funny because at the time that I was going through these things, I probably did not think that they were interesting, right? But now I feel like all of these things had to happen in divine order to get me to the place that I am in right now. So I guess my origin story starts far before I was born. I come from two immigrant parents that were born and raised in West Africa, Liberia. I tell the story often that my mom was born on the Firestone Plantation. And this is a place in Liberia where the corporation Firestone Tires bought a thousand acres of rubber rich land for 10 cents an acre to, to mine or harvest rubber in Liberia. My mother was a product of that. She lived in their barracks. She harvested some of the rubber and she went to school every day. My dad was born in Northeast Liberia in a county called Nimba County. I consider him a countryman, right? He, he was like from the bush, as we like to say. No resources, not really any formal education, but he found his way to the capital city of Morovia to get his education, study to be an engineer, and then shortly thereafter come to the United States where they met. My childhood was awesome. Although we weren't rich, I never felt like we were poor. We lived in a very impoverished neighborhood. Called Visitation Valley in San Francisco, California, where now it's beautiful, quite gentrified and a lot different than how I grew up. I have five older sisters. I'm the only boy and the youngest, although I like to say that I have a host of brothers and sisters who were refugees from the war in Liberia. Liberia went through 14 years of civil war. And my dad, uh, God bless his soul, was somebody who always went back to try to save first his family, his nieces and nephews. And then as people saw kind of what he was doing, like giving their kids to him, like take my son too, take my daughter too. So I like to say that I, I slept on a twin size bed horizontally with four other, four or five other bodies every night. And that was the environment that I grew up in, right? Host of people, host of aunties, uncles, cousins in our house. Now, John, the first, I guess, pivotal moment in my life was finding out my dad was diagnosed with terminal prostate cancer. In our culture, you'd have to be a man especially if you're the only boy, you have the responsibility to take on these like manly duties. When you're able to work, you work. You know, I was kind of brought up on those principles. Although it was never said to me, that was kind of the thing that was ingrained in my mind. My dad was preparing me to be a man, 
right? To go out in the world, to protect, to provide, to be strong, things of that nature. So my dad fought cancer for over five years and passed away in 2003. And that's really when I found myself feeling like my childhood was over. You know, like I was a man. I remember being at the funeral and, and people that he touched in a variety of ways, whether that was bringing them to the States, giving them a job opportunity, connecting them with people that they needed to meet, were coming up to me like, you're the man now. And imagine what that does to a young boy psyche that puts you in like grind mode. How old were you then? I was 12. And I remember the day like it was nothing. I was going to a Catholic school called Our Lady of the Visitation. And I remember shortly thereafter, we had to go to mass. And at mass, we had to wear ties. And I'm looking at my teacher like, how do I tie this tie? So how am I supposed to be a man or whatever, but I can't tie my tie. Shout out to Mr. Arthur Perez for uh, teaching me how to tie a tie, right? So these are some of the things that I had to learn. And from that moment on, every decision that I made was one that included my legacy in mind. Like, I need to make sure that I make my dad proud. If I'm the only man with the Yarnway name left, I want to be sure that people remember it. And that's kind of how I matriculated through life. So my origin story and the first highlight, I guess, starts there. So you were a prep school football star out of the Bay Area. I mean, you got like 50 college recruiters chasing you. And you were going to be a star running back at UC Berkeley. But then you had a bunch of injuries, two knee injuries, a foot surgery. Football career's over. Your father's passed away. I think a couple of other relatives passed away. And from the outside, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to say those things as if it's a, a fictional story and you're reading it, but I'm on the outside. I can only imagine, you know, what that does to a person. It, it either breaks you or forges a very determined person, I think, again, from mm -hmm. the outside. So, but you seem to have drawn fortitude from all that. How do you do that? So the way that you describe it does sound quite heroic, <laughs> but it was quite um, it was frustrating. It was confusing. It was a lot of weight. It was a burden that I had to carry. Right. So when you say like prep star football player, I think about it in its most practical form. I think about it in a sense that I did not want to get in trouble. It was a way to keep me out of all of the things that were happening in my environment, in my neighborhood. It was something that I was like, Hey, I would rather do this. This is what seems to me like the easiest way to create that legacy that I was talking to you about, right? So like, if I focus on this, my future could be a little better than my present. And that's what I did. So I woke up early traveling from my house in Visitation Valley, which is the southernmost tip of San Francisco, all the way to the heart of the city in Sacred Heart Cathedral. Every morning at like four in the morning, through all of the violence and stuff was going out on the bus to get on the BART, which is our train system, kind of like the subway in New York, then to run 15 minutes to my school because no other buses were running to make it to practice on time at six. So to me, it was just the easiest way, right? You said something about other people dying along the way and the knee injury. I, I think at the time it felt like my world was crashing, but when I look forward to it, it was just a signal to pivot into the best, the best thing for me. So when I went through those injuries at Cal Berkeley, <laughs> It did not feel good, but that's kind of what catapulted me into the financial services space and seeing 
my classmates that, you know, their parents started businesses and they were interested in tech and they were getting internships at these other places that allowed me to expand my mind. This wasn't the only way to make it. This wasn't the only way to create a legacy. And those industries forced me to think differently and better about what a legacy and my future could be. There are different ways to create legacies. I mean, you could have gone to work for a Fortune 100 company or something. I know you did some time at National Financial Advisors and Banks, but you started Birkdale at age 24. That's pretty young to be entrepreneurial and willing to bet on yourself. Was it just that you see Berkeley, it's close to the valley, it's in the air, or had you always been entrepreneurial? Did you ever do anything entrepreneurial earlier? That's a great question. I think UC Berkeley was definitely, it definitely took my entrepreneurial spirit to new heights. But I like to tell the story about when I was a kid um, at elementary school, I'm literally like in third grade. And at the time, my mom would give me an allowance, a couple dollars to get a snack or buy something from what we call the general store, in which you could buy pens, pencils, stuff like that. And I used to wait and save my allowance to buy the 20 pack of pencils from, from say Walgreens and come back to school and sell them to the kids cheaper than what they would have purchased it from the general store, all to buy myself snacks that my mom did not want to buy me, <laughs> um, when we went out. Right. So I would take $5, buy a 20 pack of pens, big pens from Walgreens, come back to school and say like, Hey, if they're selling it for 50 here, you can buy it from me for 25 cents. And I would go home and have like. $25. And my mom was like, how did you get this money? And I kind of told her my business model. Right. So when I think back about being entrepreneurial, it, it, it aligns with just trying to make something out of nothing. Um, and that was my first business in my mind. Now at 24, I found myself operating out of a place of pain. All of these years I've operated on my own, kind of looking at coaches and different mentors along the way to give me guidance, but really nobody really knows what they're doing. <laughs> Everybody's winging it and, and speaking from their experience. Um, so at 24, I, I just lost my brother, who I called my brother, was actually my cousin that came from the war. My dad brought him to America, lived with us at our house. And I was like, you only have one shot at this thing called life. You dare not waste a minute, right? Do not doubt yourself. Do not speak self-doubt onto you. Um, operate with confidence and go, right? I read a quote the other day that said, uh, two thirds of God's name is go. And I'm like, go, go get it, go get it. If you fail, you'll land on a cloud and you'll be in a place where you have so much more experience than when you started in any company, any bank, any institution will take you back and you can be at a higher position than you were. And at the time I was a vice president for uh, a bank in New York just go. And I went and I made mistakes. I failed. I'm still learning as an entrepreneur, but that bet on myself was the best thing that I could have done for my, my professional career. And I continue to take that mentality and everything, my relationships, right? My professional career. And I think that if you believe in a God or a higher power, those people that I operate in faith get blessed. And, and I think that was the best thing that I, I did. So tell me a little bit about the, no. What problem were you trying to solve by founding it? Problem that I wanted to solve with founding Burknell was the fact that since 
I, I became aware of the financial services industry and financial advising. The services have always been reserved for the high net worth, ultra high net worth, right? Um, the way that I was taught to be a financial advisor was to find the money, serve the money, and make sure that you are doing a good enough job for people to invest more money with you. That's the game that you find a lot of brokers and wirehouse advisors playing. That's not a good game to play. To me, it didn't seem right. And although you can play that game, do that business and uh, do it well, really serve people, help them reach their goals, really compound their, their dollars. To me, people need more. And unfortunately, because we were taught to be advisors in this way, the clients or the people that are looking for the advice are used to getting that type of advice in that order of operations. So when I got to my last step, I was responsible for close to $85 million. And I wanted to help my mom at the bank, right? And they told me that I could not serve my mom because she didn't meet the minimum thresholds to, to be a client in our division. I started thinking like, why? If any, if, if anybody needs this advice, it's probably her and people like her, people that are trying to retire, people that have worked 30 years plus at one company to receive their pension or build up their retirement nest egg. People that have taken care of their kids for so long, they just want to add up the coins for themselves to see where they land. And that really got me going. And I said that all of this, these experiences that I've had were intentional. I went from an independent advisor to then a broker to then a bank. So I understood pretty much every part of the business. And I thought that there was a real opportunity to serve those who are underserved. And that's where Burknell came in. So let's, let's expand that a little. Um, you've worked, as you said, independent, BD, bank. And of course you've started your own company. Talk to me a little bit about the role of culture in the workplace. What does it mean to you? How is it an asset? How could it be a hindrance? Culture in the workplace to me means that you are facilitating an environment that first serves the person, then serves the business. And if you do it correctly, everybody wins. So that's good work culture, right? So if you facilitate an environment that you are trying to pour into your employees, make sure that they have the proper benefits, resources, that their voices are heard, they're going to work overtime to then serve the business and make sure that you are driving growth in the business. And I think that from my experiences, companies think culture is first starting with the business and then trickling down to the person. That's backwards. That's a backwards way of thinking. It's the people that drive the growth uh, of the business. So I've had some interesting experiences with culture in the workplace. Number one, if you look at the stats, 2.6% of CAP professionals are African-American. Um, that's a low number. If you go across industries, I think we're at like the same stat, like over 2% of doctors identify as African-American or Latinx, 7.6% of all medical students identify as African-American, Latinx, or Asian-American, and one in 10 teachers are underrepresented as well, right? So then you get to this place where it's like, are you trying to change culture and diversity and be inclusive because it's a, it's the thing to do? Or 
are you trying, are you doing this? Because it actually will drive your business and it reflects a little bit more of what our country looks like. So culture starts with the people first. And if you can nurture your employees, if you can nurture your advisors, right, then inevitably these seeds that you plant will help your business grow. Um, and I think that's where we need to start and, and focus on when it comes to culture. I was going to phrase this politely of, did you ever have problems getting taken seriously as a young black man in this business? But I'll just put it, I grew up in the Bronx, so I'm just going to put it this way. What sort of racism is you, have you experienced as a profession? Um, my, I've, a lot, right? And now I don't as much, but I consider myself an anomaly. And I know that, you know, my colleagues that are black, that are African and Latinx, that are women are, are still facing this. And I am too. Um, but I remember being told that I had to like shave, like being told that not to talk like that. One of my worst stories that I've had was being on call at a branch for one of the firms that I worked at. And they're like, all right, you got to call these clients. You got to give them updates and pretty much sell them products. And I called this lady. I'm like, hey, Sarte Yarnway with X Firm. And she was like, is this one of the scam calls from Nigeria? We don't want it. We don't want this. And now I laugh about it, but this is how much we're missing the representation in our industry for somebody like me to call a client and they think that it's a scam call from an African country is unacceptable, right? So I'm very open about my experiences. I'm very open about what I've had to face. And I believe that to some degree, I've had to go through these things so somebody else won't. But we're a long way from the inclusivity, the representation and belonging that we need to see in this industry so that it doesn't happen. Much better than we were, right? But still a long way to go. So one of your pieces of advice to your clients is to pay it forward. It's obvious why that's important to you, but how are you doing that personally? I'm mentoring. I'm giving people opportunities to work with Burknell or through any of the projects that I'm doing so that they feel like they're included. Number one, they're gaining experience um, and they can grow their personal careers. That's the way that I do it. My family is also, I'm talking about my wife and I, we're also very intentional about giving. We're huge givers, right? To causes and um, people, places, things that we feel like could use the money. Because at the end of the day, money is important, but it's just money. I think it's a tool that we use to pour into the, the people, the places, and the things that we love and admire the most. So that's the way that I'm doing it. And I want to be sure to be present for younger advisors that are trying to come into the space, be present for my colleagues. Um, and I'll continue to do that no matter what my role in the industry or my firm looks like. What's the emotional reaction you get from mentoring? The emotional reaction that I give to mentoring is a feeling of gratitude to be in a position to mentor, number one, and then a feeling of purpose. Like I was meant to do this because I look at some of the people that I've been fortunate enough to speak to and I see myself. I, I, I look on my LinkedIn now as a reminder and at the time in which I was applying for jobs in the financial services space, I applied for 264 positions. And many of them are notable wirehouses that said no, said no to me. So hopefully by mentoring these individuals, by giving them a personal recommendation, they're able to go further and not, 
receive those those blocks just because of their name like I did or just because of the way that they look. So I feel I feel grateful to be in a position. I will not squander and I feel a sense of purpose as well. What's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about and why, either professionally or personally? Professionally, I'm excited about just the initiatives surrounding diversity, inclusion, and belonging in the financial services space. I believe that through firms like Hello Choir, through the Onyx Advisor Network, right, our industry will look a lot more like our like our country does in the next three to five years. And by that happening, I think that there will be a huge trickle-down effect in which that hopefully 20 years from now, we'll see a diverse set of advisors, but not just diverse, but a place where they're included. This just this inclusivity is a hundred X in our industry because of the work that's being done right now by trailblazing advisors. So I'm really excited about that as it pertains to our industry. Um, I'm also excited about this evolution in technology. I think that more information is disseminating. I think that money is moving quite fast. So if you have an idea, it's the time to raise and, and raise equity and share equity and growth in companies. And I'm seeing a lot of that amongst my peers, which is, is super exciting. Personally, I'm excited to have my first child in May. We're having a baby girl. And after losing my father, I've always wanted to be a father. And I think in line with legacy, I've made some of these risks, not for myself, but with my, my wife and my future child in mind. Right. So to see all of this stuff manifest in real time is super exciting and, and heartwarming for me. So, um, those are the two things that I'm excited about. And I got to tell you that, um, I have two children, they're grown and there is nothing like it, you know, you take home a child. And even though, obviously, the world is full of people who were children or were born to parents, you go, no, no, you don't understand. There's nothing like this. This is special. This is, yeah. no one's ever had this before. So I hope everything goes smoothly for you and that mother and child are healthy. And, you know, God bless, because that's just the, the thing. And I'm sorry, normally I don't intercede in podcasts, but um, even now, my daughter is 33. I think about it, I get teary-eyed, so. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. One other thing you mentioned the Onyx network for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with it. And I know you co-founded just a brief one or two sentence description of what it is. Yeah. So the Onyx network is a support platform for underrepresented advisors to help them start scale and sustain their business. So essentially what we're trying to do, and I'll just rip off some stats here. I, I ripped off some earlier, but. 70% of advisors are men of that 70%, 80% of that number are white men. Um, and that's okay. But I think that the industry needs to reflect what our country looks like. And by doing that, hopefully we can impact both advisor businesses and the wealth gap that is obviously widening on a day-to-day -day basis. The Onyx Advisor Network is here to create more messengers. So more people get the, the information, more people get the advice like my mother needed back in 2015. So if we're doing that, I think that we find ourselves in a better financial position um, as a country, right? So when I say inclusive, I also want to just note that it doesn't mean just for black people or just for people of color. When we say inclusion, we're, we're talking about people of color. We're talking about women, especially women of color. We're talking about the entire LGBTQ plus community. So 
I'm super excited about what Onyx is going to do. And I think that with all of the plans that we have for this year and beyond, it's going to make huge, huge, huge impact. Okay. Thanks. Um, in a number of your podcasts, you ask your guests a question. I'd like to ask that same question back to you. What does wealth mean to you? It's a hard question to answer, but I think I've planted my flag in the sand and wealth to me means health first and foremost. Um, I think that I just want to continue to feel good in my body, continue to do the things, um, that, that make me feel alive, healthy, both mentally, spiritually, and physically. That's the first bit of wealth. I, I read a quote the other day that says a sick man just wants to feel healthy. A healthy man doesn't know what he has. Right. So I want to continue to feel my best. I think that's, that's huge to me, especially with my family history and losing my dad early. I want to make sure that I feel healthy and I'm very, very serious about that. And then the next thing is when people think about wealth, they think about money, they think about what they have. And my next definition of wealth has nothing to do with dollars. And that is wealth to me means time affluence. Um, if I'm able to have time to spend with the people that I love the most and, and time to create time to build businesses, the money will take care of itself, right? But the most precious asset that we have is time as humans. And I want to make sure that I'm in control of how I spend that time um, and what I do with it, right? I I'm willing to bet on myself as you've probably learned from our conversation. And if I have that time influence, I think that I can do a lot to impact the world. Let's end with a couple of quick questions. How do you relax? turn off my phone. <laughs> I go to the gym or I write. Those are some ways that I try to relax. Although I don't get it as much as I used to, especially now with my daughter on the way, but those are the, the ways that I relax. What sort of music do you listen to? Oh man, I love uh, a genre of music called Afrobeats. So this is a type of music that is heavily influenced by West Africa. Um, dating all the way back. I mean, I don't know how far back it goes because it's definitely cultural, but um, my oldest Afrobeat musician that I listen to is Fela Kuti from Nigeria, who's a talented jazz musician. Awesome, awesome, awesome. But I listen to a lot of Afrobeats. What are you reading right now? Right now I'm reading a book called Fiber Fuel, going back to just health as wealth. Fiber Fuel is saying that by living on a, I guess, a primarily plant-based diet, you'll have more energy, you'll feel better in your skin, um, and giving you recipes to kind of do so. So I'm reading Fiber Fuel right now. I'm going to take a look at Atomic Habits, which is right next to me later this year. I, I've read it, but I want to read it again. There's just so many good gems in that book as well. So Fiber Fueled and Atomic Habits by James Clear. Do you ever read fiction? I do. Um, I read a book not so long called, called The American Marriage, which was super good. Based on a couple that lived in Atlanta, I would recommend anybody that hasn't read that to read that as well. Cool. If you could be on vacation right now, where would it be? have a couple locations. Actually, I'm going to Mexico on Thursday and I'll be in Cabo San Lucas for our baby moon. <laughs> but if I could pick anywhere, I'll probably be somewhere in West Africa um, or East Africa, somewhere that I haven't seen before. So a West Africa location, perhaps somewhere in Liberia, perhaps somewhere off the coast of South Africa or something. Those would be some cool places to check out. The continent's so big and it's so different. You never know what you're going to get. When you go on a vacation, do you go for the people to meet them culturally? Do you go 
to see the natural beauty? Do you go to museums? What do you like to do when you're on vacation? When I go, it's a combination of culture and nature. So when I say culture, the way that people think and exist within a place is different depending on where they are in the world. For example, we, when you go to West Africa, particularly Liberia, because most of the population is not as poor, the fulfillment of life comes from different things. It comes from community, from village, from good food, um, from dancing. Whereas in America, <laughs> who knows what we say fulfills our life, right? It's like, how big is your bank account? So culture, um, first, and then secondly, I would say nature, just seeing the way the, the, the land lays out when I'm in Africa, depending on where I am, even if it's a layover, I take a layover sometimes and I'll stop in like a Morocco or Sierra Leone and you just look out and the sun is hitting the trees different, right? It's just a different experience. And I think it does something to you spiritually. So culture includes people and then definitely nature, because I think that every place has a bit of beauty in it. Last question. If you could magically whisper in every American's ear, what's the one fact or belief you wish they knew? You are capable. Anything that you desire, you can have. You just can't quit. And that's probably the thing that I would whisper, right? Because I think we oftentimes get in our own way and we have to fight the urge to not believe in ourselves because reality looks like today. And I think that's something that we all need to know. A lot of people are sleeping or sitting on dreams that they could have had manifest 10 years ago, but they weren't listening to themselves or they weren't listening to the true essence of themselves or not believing in their capabilities. So that's what I would say. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with John McCumnick and our special guest, Desarte Yarnway, founder and managing director of Burknell Financial Group. Thanks very much, Desarte. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you, John. Onward. Thanks for listening. Outside In is hosted by John McCumnick and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you leave us a review as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show and to stay in the know about future episodes, sign up for our newsletter on sparknetwork.com.